Today's show is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. Go to AdamandEve.com right now and you'll get 50% off just about any item. All you have to do is enter the code word GLORY, G-L-O-R-Y, at checkout. Be advised that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. Recording live from Glory Hole Studios in Chicago, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way, we bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome mat. This is episode 524 of Cognitive Dissonance. Yeah, and we, you know, so we had recorded this thinking we were going to have more time. Uh, Maybe we would need more time because we didn't know how long our guest was going to be, but our guest wound up filling up the whole show. So we would normally just introduce the guest here, but we just decided to maybe leave a space in case, and we didn't need it because our guest is super awesome. Imagine that, Cecil. Uh, Mike Marshall talks a lot. That's (laughs) See, that's your gentle way, but but mine is Mike Marshall. Yeah. yeah, try to get a word he in. He talked a little, a little too much, but uh, but it was great. We had a great time, and, awesome and this, that interview is coming up this this show. So uh, so we hope you enjoy it. Here it is. I was just handed this new ad read, and I apologize in advance. Um, it, the guys are geo targeting. I don't know. Here we go. Hello, how do this morning? All right, well, items without requirement of payment, i.e. free stuff, is smashing, innit? Yay, verily, free stuff to get randy plonkers in your flat wagon is the Queen's Knackers. Determine almost any singular item for half a pence top of a gilly pound quid, i.e. 50% off, metric. And then Adam and Eve is ace on the free stuff. I'm as gobsmacked as you. Now wangle your shopping trolley and deposit offer code GLORY at register and get three less a baker's dozen ten. Smashing free gifts. A chuffed item for your banger, a randy prezzy for your fanny, and a third item you'll both be absolutely knees up for. And six free hot films, horses for courses and whatnot. What's more, free post. So why not take a butcher's hook at adamandeve.com and use code GLORY, G-L-O-R-Y, offer code GLORY at checkout at adamandeve.com. Can you Adam and Eve it. Aubergine chemist Pip Pip Bob's your uncle tickety boo. <sighs> Jesus Christ. So we are joined today uh, by a guest, um, a guest we haven't had on the show in far, far too long, and a guest who is 
the only actual full-time professional naysayer that I have ever met. And I was I was thinking about this before we decided to have you on. Um, and by that, I mean about 20 minutes ago. And I was wondering, like, is telling people they're wrong still considered an essential service? To answer that question, Mark, yeah, it's an, an absolute pleasure to be on, guys. It has been a while since we on uh, since I was last on. It's been so long that civilization ended since the last time I was on. That's how long this has actually been. So that's that's good news. That's uh, yeah. I'm so sad. Things have gotten weird. Things have gotten very weird. This is oh, not how I thought my 2020 man. was going to pan out. When you look at a year and you're like. Were we having an election? Because <laughs> you kind of forget for like long stretches of time that like oh. that like Australia was just on fire like an hour ago. Oh, yeah. You're like, oh, I remember Australia. Well, I remember talking <laughs> I don't about Brexit. Anymore. That was a big deal for a while, and that's kind right? of gone on. Oh yeah. But people keep thinking that Brexit, because of all this going on, that Brexit's gone on the back burner, and it has, but only in the sense that you've put it on the back burner and forgot about it, and it is currently on fire on that back burner, and you're looking somewhere <laughs> else. You know, ah, I'm sure that fire will sort itself out as that fire gets uh, larger and larger. We still leave the EU completely at the end of this year, and this year was a short time period we had in which to agree everything about how our country runs and in the in and then everybody had a month yeah, off well, we've, we've had yeah. the first five months well four months of the year off given that we had january the government basically went on holiday anyway boris johnson was on holiday in, in ah. january and large parts of february and then since then all we've done is corona um and we haven't oh even been gosh. talking to the eu about corona which we should probably have been doing it turns out <laughs> well can wait i have questions already about the things that you've said did you say he was on holiday? Yeah, so so Boris Johnson won, won the election uh, and then uh, took a little bit of time off and then it was Christmas. Uh, sorry, a little time wait, off for wait, that. Wait, oh, okay. wait, I just don't even understand that idea. He he won the election and then was like, cool. Yeah. I'm on vacation? Yeah, yeah it was time for him to have a holiday. Yeah. I'm what? actually one step behind you, Tom. He won the election? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, does, do you guys not have TV cameras? Has anyone seen <laughs> Boris Johnson? Oh, it's 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 disastrous. It's absolutely disastrous. But even then, like he went on holiday um, for how he long? Went, I think it was like a couple of weeks. He went uh, went away on holiday. It, you know, it was last year, which means it was what? a fucking century ago. So we have no right. idea. <laughs> I can't but what we do know is that he went on holiday to a like a swanky villa somewhere that was paid uh, for by someone else uh, at someone else's expense, and he said, "Oh no, it was uh, it was these guys paid for it," and they went, "Nope." We, did, we weren't paying for your uh, your private villa. Someone else that you aren't disclosing apparently paid for your private villa. And he hasn't told us who was paying for the newly newly minted prime minister of the UK to uh, be on holiday. That's just one of those undisclosed deals that's happened somewhere. Um, okay, but he probably did say, to his credit, uh, scandal schmandal, and that does kind of absolve you. Yeah, yeah. He'll have made right. some sort yeah. of uh, half-assed allusion towards Greek mythology, and people would have gone, oh, isn't that cute? Isn't he smart? Because he knows uh, the occasional Greek word that he mispronounces and can't actually do if you really look into, any of the, uh, into what, anything he says in any depth. But it doesn't matter because most people aren't going to look into what he says in depth. So everything is fine. Everything's absolutely fine. Yeah, so he, he was he was on holiday when the, the coronavirus thing started. The sword of Achilles is hanging over our heads, people. Like, <laughs> yeah, sword of exactly. Achilles? All right. That's great. Uh. Oh, man. When Hercules had those wings and he flew too close to the sun, it was just... It's Great. like Icarus mucking out the stables, guys. This is what we got to do. We got to buckle down. What the right. fuck is up with that guy's hair? Can I ask a, like a genuine what? question here? Yeah. And there's a genuine what answer. What the 
There was a very genuine answer to what's going on in his head because that's the look that he affects for uh, for for appearing in public to the point where <laughs> there has been video. There's been video interviews with him where the camera's rolling before you start talking to him, and he intentionally ruffles his hair up to make it look messy before he goes on air because that's his persona. It's the oh, just it's you know dishevelled, only just got here. Oh, Boris, you know classic Boris. That's the persona that he has. You know, in the same way Donald Trump has the posturing machismo kind of. Uh, and an and ego kind of persona. Boris has the dishevelled, only half prepared, but I'm sure he's really actually is prepared and he's just pretending to only be half prepared. Um, that's the, the, the character he cultivates in order to hide the fact that he's done nothing, that he doesn't do anything, <laughs> doesn't know anything, half asses oh, everything and has half asked his way oh. into running the country during a pandemic. It's fucking terrifying. How oh the fuck God. is that like a look somebody wants to effect? Like I get it if you're like, I want to have like the 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 bad boy tussle just out of bed hair look if I'm like, you know, trying to affect the look of someone who doesn't get well. What is what is the advantage of looking like you don't care about your job when your job is the most important job there is? So I think the advantage is that people assume it, it, that he do, he must actually care and it must just be an affectation. And it, oh, it's, it's that it's 40 a, chess shit. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double bluff he's played basically his entire life in that uh, he, if you are someone who isn't well prepared and you try and bluff being prepared, you're going to get found out. But if you bluff being really badly prepared, people will assume that you were actually much better prepared <laughs> than you appear to be. It's like, he can't be this badly prepared. And it's it's uh, there was a fantastic story that went around from uh, one of the, the people who used to present the news here in the UK. And he said he did uh, a conference. He did like a, a public event thing with Boris. And Boris turned up very last second before he was meant to go on stage, was meant to present an award, hadn't got a speech, and he scribbled down some random thoughts that made absolutely no sense at all uh, to, to present, to do a speech presenting this award and had some sort of story about sheep where there was a three parts to the story and he, <laughs> he, he forgot the punchline of the third part and he delivered this in a shambolic way and it was Jesus ludicrous Christ. but everyone thought it had some charm to it kind of thing. You know, he, he couldn't remember the name of the award and looked over his shoulder to see what the award was called and things. Oh and it was like, God. oh, isn't this charming? But the same newsreader did a, an event a couple of years later with Boris and Boris did word for word the exact same fucking thing. Because it was an act that he was unprepared. He just learned the script of being unprepared because that script is universal. You can be unprepared for anything as long as you are well rehearsed in how unprepared you are. Okay, I, I got it. Honestly, I have to give credit where it's due right there. Because like that is in direct opposition to our leadership in the US, which is unprepared and not bluffing, mm. just straight unprepared all the time. I... Like there's there's a there's a sense that it's like I want to half ass everything. If I tell you I'm going to zero ass it and I bring half my ass, I've exceeded your expectations. That is exactly like, it. Kind, there is an actual brilliance to that that I have to like it's no good, it's morally bankrupt, it's not leadership. Like there's a lot of really significant problems to it. Yeah. But like it's still orders of magnitude better than what yeah. we got. So, so it is Christ. it's brilliant in I would say about 80 to 90% of uh, situations in which you'd end up being prime minister. It is not brilliant in a no. pandemic. Yep. You can't yeah, half-ass and, uh, and fake yeah. no, preparation a for horror. a pandemic. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an it's, absolute It's a horror he should disaster. be ashamed to be employing, right? Like, I'm just saying it's brilliant in, in, in a strategic element, but mm -hmm. like, 
it's so wildly selfish and that like the only person who wins from that is him. Yeah. And last time I checked, that's not how leadership works. Well, it is how so, leadership of the Tory party works. Oh, God. That, that is how that party works, basically. It's, it's, the, the whole party is founded, founded on the idea that if we all excel individually, we'll all, the, the collectively will excel. If we only care about ourselves and put enough as much effort as we can into ourselves and pushing ourselves as far as possible, and everyone does the same thing, uh, everyone will be fine. Obviously, fundamentally missing that for everyone to be able to do the same thing, they all have to have the same advantages to begin with. Right. You need to start with the yeah. same amount of resources as everyone sure. else. Because if you start with nothing and you're there to to drag yourself up, you're fucked. And the people at the top, having never started with nothing, having started already with everything, course their way through life, thinking life therefore must be easy because I can do it at a canter. Yeah, because it's because they, they don't understand that, or they do understand, but they don't want to admit that things like privilege exist. They just don't want to admit that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it completely makes sense. I got to roll back, though, just for a <laughs> second. And just, I mean, we missed you. We were going to try to talk to you right after the election or right before the election. You had a guy, Jeremy Corbyn, I think mm. his name was, and then you had Boris Johnson. Both of them looked like they were the their, their pick for the uh, the prime minister seat. You guys don't directly vote for them. You vote for your prime, your your uh, members of parliament, yeah. and then that that member, that group of parliament, then will decide who the prime minister is. I have that correct, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, in principle, you're only voting for your local MP, and once whichever party gets the most seats gets to decide who they put as the right. prime minister, you yeah. know, the minister in charge. Yeah, and they had they had already decided, everybody decides well in advance who they're going to pick, right? So yeah, it's not yeah. that there's going to be a switcheroo. They're going to be like, it's going to be Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's actually this guy. They don't do that, right? Well, they, they don't, but they sort of can. So um, in an election, you, it's pretty solid that this is the leader of the opposition, they'll be the, uh, and the leader of each party. These are the leader of the party going into the election, and these will be the prime minister. Whichever one of these, uh, whoever's party gets the most votes, will be the prime minister. Um, but we don't vote for uh, the prime minister themselves. We're not electing Boris Johnson in. We're not electing Jeremy Corbyn in, although it essentially is a proxy for that. But they... They are they are a a member of parliament for their area. So some people are voting them in, right? Like so, they're a small group. Is yeah, exactly. Them. So Corbyn is in in London, and uh, Boris Johnson was uh, parachuted, in, dro just dropped into a safe Tory seat in Uxbridge. <laughs> in, so it literally, genuinely, was brought in. So he was the mayor of London previous to that. And yeah, you can't yeah. be. Uh, you have to be a, a minister in order to be prime minister. So they just put him in the safest seat they could find in in Uxbridge. Nice. Um, nice, I see. But the you can do a switcheroo. You can't do it. It would be, be insane to do it directly after the election because you'd completely undermine everything the public just voted for, and the public would base it. You'd have a, a, almost immediately a, a call of no confidence in the government because how could you have confidence in a government who said oh. this is the leader, but as soon as you get in, we're going to change. But this is why we saw with Theresa May, for example, uh, you know, she she won the previous uh, leadership election because everybody else knifed each other in the back, and including Boris, knifed, someone, knifed uh, Cameron in the back, and uh, oh, no, he knifed someone else in the back, and then Michael Gove knifed Boris in the back and took himself out, and Theresa May became prime minister because she was just the last one standing. But she was meant to be prime minister for a much longer time, but because her own party lost confidence in her, they replaced her with Boris, and he was then prime minister going into an election. So he wasn't voted in as prime minister. He was only only sort of uh, appointed prime minister from his membership because once you're in, you can change prime minister, but doing so comes with a theoretically comes with a political cost. In normal times, in a, in a functioning democracy, uh, it would come with a, a cost, and that cost normally 
areas, you have to then go back to election at some point because your party and the way you've, yeah, you, you intend to right. lead the party has not been sure. voted in by the people. I see. So now, with those the election that happened, with the election that happened that Boris Johnson became the prime minister, that just so shows that England, just or that the UK, just like just like the United States, surprisingly <clears throat> leans right. It it does, but I think it also there's there's so many factors into it. Um, I think as a country we probably do unfortunately lean centre right, although centre right here would be pretty left wing for you guys because oh, you're I know. much it's further like super further left wing. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, go us. Um, yeah. The 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 thing is the amount of sway the uh, the newsprint media has in this country is incredibly uh, incredibly high, and, and various newspapers will claim to be the you know the the Sun very famously claimed that they won the election for uh, for Major uh, when John Major replaced uh, Thatcher I think it was or maybe it was when Blair uh, replaced Major I forget which one but the Sun will, has claimed victories in elections and uh, the Daily Mail the Daily Express uh, the Daily Telegraph have huge sway particularly on certain demographics in the country so fairly middle class. Uh, um, older leaning uh, demographics, and those are the demographics most likely to vote. So we have a, 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 a sort of a society that's quite heavily influenced by the press, and the press in this country um, very much leans towards the right anyway. And then we had Jeremy Corbyn, who, as a figure for the left, was much further to the left than uh, Labour would normally be, or had normally uh. been in the last couple of decades. So people who were who might have gone for a centre left party looked at Corbyn, looked at everything that was being said in the far-right media and the, and the sort of the, pr- the predominant media about Corbyn, which was extreme scaremongering, and said, no, thank you. And then we had a whole thing going on with uh, with the failure to tackle anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which could have been very, should have been very easy to stamp out and wasn't dealt with effectively. And that put off people who would be in sort of the reasonable left who might have gone for a, a vote for the Liberal Democrats, the Greens, you know, a, another leftist party. Um, we we have the real problem here as well in that we've got four or five parties who would identify as being fairly uh, on the left of the spectrum. And on the right of the spectrum, you've got the Tories. And occasionally you've got the Brexit Party, and the Brexit Party was just formed from disgruntled Tories. And when the Brexit Party collapsed, they collapsed into the Tory party. So <laughs> you end up, the only time the right splits is when it has an ideological split uh, for over a very temporary uh, period of time. And that ideology ends up resolving to just anchor the right into a more right-wing place, basically. And then it coalesces back together in time for an election, uh, in time to fuck the the split left, essentially. So I don't know whether we do really lean that far to the right as a country, but we certainly vote that far to the right. And that's, unfortunately, the main uh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to ask you about that about that piece, because I'm wondering if there is an analog between our two countries in terms of like, the, the disconnect between uh, the general sentiment and who actually makes all the goddamn decisions, right? Mm. Which is the voters. So do you, do you have a problem with young people apathy? Where, where young people just don't attend and uh, don't vote. Yeah, yeah, we, we do. I mean, um, you are the, the the numbers in terms of who who votes is hugely skewed towards the older you are, the more likely you are to to, to vote. Um, and that was borne out by things like the Brexit uh, referendum, where right. I think 
if you look at the demographics, every demographic up until I think the like the, the bracket that ends with either 50s or 55, 60, something in that kind of region, I think it might have been 55, every demographic below 55 voted to remain in the EU and every demographic older than 55 voted to leave. Um, and yet we ended up voting to leave in a majority, even though the majority of the country is not over 55. So there's a skew in who votes and that massively drives um, what parties get delivered. And that then has this kind of feedback loop where if you are in your early 20s coming out of university with a massive, uh, saddled with a massive student debt, looking at the housing uh, crisis and, and the inability for anybody to get anywhere near the housing ladder because the, the spiraling cost of houses and the governments that get in uh, after you voted do nothing to address those issues and only start giving more money in pensions and sort of making it much easier for people who are much older and much more wealthy to uh, stay comfortable, then you're going to think, well, I voted and it meant nothing. So why am I even wasting my time? This government doesn't care about me. No government can care about me. I, you know, you, you, you hit on something that like that I, I want to touch on too, because again, I, I think there's an analog to our citizens and I think it's interesting that it, that it extends across the pond. And that's like, we talk about it, and I think I think I've done the same thing in terms of like the people in their twenties. But the demographic reality is that it's also the people in their thirties and forties mm. who are not showing up to the table. They're not showing up to vote, and like we lay all of that blame on people at the beginning of their adult lives, when the demographic reality is that people right in the dead center of their adult lives, the thirties and the forties, because we have the exact same demographics issue. It's so interesting to see that it's the same. And what it's essentially led to is this same kind of like cult of personality, quasi-fascist right-wing bullshit taking hold and like just continuing to give to the people that vote, which are these people's in their 50s and 60s and 70s, even though the demographic reality is not to put the blame on the people in their 20s, but their yeah. 30s and 40s who are just not showing up. And I don't understand that. Do you, well, do you have any I, I, sense of why that might be happening? Because well, the yeah. 20s is one thing, but the 35-year-olds are also not attendant, right? Yeah, so I think uh, I think as you progress through your 30s, the numbers of people who do vote do go up. They don't go up to the, to the levels that we would want. I mean, ideally, you'd want everyone voting, and then we'd have a, a pretty representative system. Um, but I wonder whether the... the the apathy of the twenty of the, uh, the the apathy that affects people in their very early uh, adulthood in their twenties that apathy is so so ingrained now that it was certainly there when I was in my twenties. You know, the majority of my friends didn't particularly vote, and none of my family voted. I don't think any of my family have ever cast a vote. Uh, anyone in my uh, in in my, certainly my my mum's side of the family, and I don't think my dad's side particularly either. Um, so voting wasn't just wasn't something you did generally, and partly that's because I mean. I grew up in the northeast of, the, of England, which was traditionally a labour stronghold, mining communities um, that during the, the late 70s, early 80s, the Tories, uh, the, the Thatcher government made uh, specific policies that were designed to uh, cut off the, the safety net for miners because they felt that the mining uh, union had too much power. And so there was a big miners' strike. Miners were being essentially starved by the government, starved of work and starved of resources to to pay for for food. Um, And those memories lingered on, certainly when I was growing up. So in the 90s, 2000s, um, nobody there would have voted for the Tories in their lives because that that was the government that did that to us. So we will not vote for them. But what that means is Labour know they're definitely getting in. 
So you have a safe seat, a surefire bet. You're not going to vote for anyone else. So we, we don't need to run our best people. We don't need to necessarily work that hard to make everything work around here. And when you have a local uh, representative who is always from the same party um, in a, a governmental uh, parliament that is usually in that time has been from the other party, people say, well, I voted Labour and this government did nothing for me. you know, Or I didn't vote Labour, but La I see Labour always get in, and yet the government, it, things around here are getting worse. And so people end up blaming their local representative, even though their local representative is not from the, the ruling party, and is only having to sort of deal with what's been handed down from the, from the ruling party. So I think you have that kind of thing, and I think that's been embedded long enough that it was like that when I was in my 20s, and I'm now in my mid-30s. And I, obviously I thought, but I imagine there's a lot of people who that apathy has gone from being kind of disillusionment into becoming habitual. And so you kind of end up graduating a class of apathetic voters who see no change in the system and another generation behind them, another generation behind them, and they all kind of get older together. Um, so I, I wonder whether that's why at the moment yeah. we're not seeing great numbers in their, in their 30s and mid-30s and onwards because they've just been bred through the system that disenfranchised them or disillusioned them in the first place. So do you think then that like prior generations weren't disenfranchised and disempowered in the same way? Because like, obviously like people in their 50s and 60s are voting. They probably, you know, like th those people who didn't vote in their 20s, if, if part of the reason they're not voting in their 30s is because they didn't vote in their 20s. Mm. At some point that had to have a start and that's generationally go forward. But like the people in their 50s probably didn't just start voting in their 50s. Like they didn't just like wake up and start. So like at what point, I wonder, did that disempowerment and disenfranchisement like what events like precipitate that generational change to disproportionately mm. empower the older generation and disempower the younger generation? Because I think that seems so much, Cecil, I don't know if you agree, but that seems so much like what we see here. Like that analog is really striking. When we see the people here that talk about being disenfranchised, especially the younger voters right now, um, there's an idea that, uh, that's pervasive that if they can just uh, throw a wrench in it now mm. that you'll see change in the future. And there's never been any track record of that actually happening. Yeah. That, you know, that if we do fuck the system right now and we buck the system and say, screw it, I'm not going to vote or I'm going to vote for fucking Jill Stein or some other fool then you're going to wind up bucking the system and changing the system because the system will say, oh, no, 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 we really wanted you. We're going to change our mind. I want you back. I want you back. Like it's a dysfunctional relationship or something. Mm. And it's not like that. It's not like that at all. There's, they're, they're embedded and they're in power and, they're, and one or two elections is not going to rock any of that. And so the, uh, the apathy that we see over here is I think a little different. I think it's more there's an activity of trying to actually thwart the system that's just as much of an abject failure as non-participation, in my opinion. Well, I think that's, that's what we saw in part with uh, the Brexit vote. Um, that was that, uh, let's throw a spanner in the works and, and burn everything down. Um, and unfortunately, uh, part of the reason for that was that we, we had uh, the incumbent government pushing for Remain. And so people saw the government that they were disillusioned with and the government that they thought does nothing for us. And they thought, this is an opportunity to say oh, no gosh. to that government. Yeah. So the you enemy this... of my enemy, right? Yeah, ex yeah, exactly. Well, it's not even that because I don't think they, that it's hard. 
every, there were lots of different reasons people voted. And I don't want to minimise it and say, well, everybody who voted Leave was stupid for this reason, because it's not that at all. There's loads of different reasons, and some of them may have loads more Loads of different reasons they were stupid? Is that Lots of different reasons why they were stupid. <laughs> they weren't all racist. It's just that all the racists <laughs> were mostly that way. racist. Right. You know, Only mostly racist. But we, we do know that lots of people cast their first ever vote for the in the referendum for leaving the EU. And that that's that says something. And and part of what that's saying is people who didn't feel like they had a part to play or that there was a space for them in parliamentary democracy um felt like this was their chance to send a message. And if you were a voter who had seen the same party returned election after election after election in your local area, and you just see your local area getting worse and worse, as you see in the northeast and parts of the northwest, where where uh, certainly where my wife uh, grew up, it's just been getting progressively worse. Even though it's had uh, what would be in, in uh, normally a, 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 a local representative who ought to be working for the, the poorest of people, um, it's just it's had a government that isn't working for that. It's had a government who isn't set up for uh, build a social safety net. It's had the government that was set up for everybody to look after themselves and we'll all be fine. Um, so as you see things getting worse and you see the same politicians getting returned, I could see people saying, well, there's no point me voting in, a, in an election because I can only vote for the guy who's already in. He's the best that that's on offer and he's already doing nothing. So why vote for him? But this referendum comes along and it's an opportunity to say, you know what, fuck you. You're asking me to do one thing, I'm going to do another. This is a really simple question. It's not, or people would see it as a simple question. It's not all about, I'll vote for you and will you do something for me in the future? It's, do you want this, yes or no? And when you've had a right-wing press stirring up hatred of the EU for such a long time, then people say, well, this government wants us to stay with this. I'm going to say, fuck this government. And so we had this kind of thing. So first off, let's just, let's just, for people who aren't in the UK, what is being in the EU offer you that not being in the that that is different from not being in the EU? Like, what's what does that offer you? Yeah, so there's a few things. Well, there's there's, there's quite a lot of things. Um, but one of them is the EU is our biggest trading partner, and we trade uh, with them on a tariff-free system, which means I think it's, it's I don't have the numbers to hand, but it's it's a stupid amount, like 70, 80 percent of all of the, the the trade that we do in the world around the world is with people in the EU, is with countries in the EU. And leaving the EU means we can't get a tariff-free system. We've got to start putting tariffs in place because the EU is a members club. And the, uh, there have to be advantages to being a member of the club. Otherwise, people wouldn't be a member of the club. If you got to get those advantages without being in the club, you certainly wouldn't be in the club because p- being in the club costs money. But right. that m- money is an investment. You say, we, we spend this amount, and what we get back is we don't have to pay taxes and tariffs on the trade we do with you, which is pretty useful. And uh, we say, well... Does it, does it cross that out? Is that, is that worth... On a on a balance sheet, is it is it more you're paying less in dues than you would in tariffs? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, the, right. the, and, and those numbers are, are, are pretty clear, and that's just on that one particular tariff thing. Um, then we have the issue of if we are in a common block. Um, we don't need to check goods as they come into the UK from the EU because we all have an agreement that you checked on the way into the block. In the same way that moving around the US, you don't have to stop at the at the border of each state and declare what you're bringing in the next state in case it doesn't meet the kind of the, the regulations of the state or in case it needs to be taxed on the way. And you don't sure. need that crossing borders because you're part of the same system. 
They do that with the EU, which allows us to have a manufacturing plant in Sunderland, near where I grew up, um, which completely re reinvigorated the, the economy of that area at a time when the government had been saying, fuck the Northeast, we don't want anything to do with them. You know, it's not our priority because everyone should look, at, look after themselves. There was a, a, a car manufacturing plant uh, built in Sunderland that relies on getting parts that are made elsewhere in Europe that arrive at the door of that plant or arrive at the, the local factories nearby, which then create turn them into a, a, a larger part to take into the plant. Uh, and then cars roll out of that, uh, that, uh, that manufacturing plant and head off back into Europe to be sold. And the way that works really efficiently is the parts that come in from Europe don't need to be checked on the way in to make sure they are what they say they are because they came from elsewhere in Europe and were all part of the same block. So everything that was built the parts for that were checked on the way into the block. Once they're in the block, you're in the club, it's fine. So you can get those parts to roll straight into the factory without stopping and get the cars to roll straight back out. And you have a seamless supply, supply chain, a just-in-time supply chain, which allows you to, to, to kill off a lot of overheads because you don't need to have a massive warehouse stocking loads of parts in case a lorry gets stuck for a bit longer than expecting and suddenly you're starved of parts and your entire factory is useless for a while. So you don't have to have this massive backlog of, uh, of, of stored parts in order to make sure you're never going to be uh, wasting time. You can just rely on things arriving on time because nothing's being checked on the way. That is going to break with, with Brexit because we can't make an agreement because we uh, specifically have said we don't want to be part of that agreement because part of that agreement means you're not checking parts on the way in, you're not checking people on the way in. So if you're an EU worker, you don't have to get uh, checked on the way in because we're all part of the same system. And that was the, the red line for the government. Is that the, the, the sort of racist undertones? Is there a, because I know that that's one of the things that everybody was talking about is like that, you know, that some people who voted for Brexit were doing it for reasons that were xenophobic and racist. What are those reasons? So it, I, I don't want to necessarily say their reasons were xenophobic and racist, although there were some racist arguments. And there were people who were saying, uh, I voted... Well, let's, let's, to, well, there were people saying, I voted to leave the EU because I think there are too many Africans here. Literally, that's what they'd say. It's like, well, that's not going to do anything. You know, there's too many Muslims walking around and that's why I voted to leave the EU. Then you fundamentally didn't understand what you were voting for because this okay. will not affect that. And actually, what it'll actually mean is um, because we have no, sh we, we are not going to have fewer, need, fewer needs for people, we're just going to have fewer places where those people can be coming from. We're going to have fewer people coming in from Poland, but we'll have more people coming in from India, for example, because we still got those that need for people. So the people who did vote to say, I see too many brown people and on the bus there's too many different languages spoken and I want out of the EU for that those people are going to get more of the, the very thing they didn't want because they didn't know what they were voting for and they were sold a pup on this they were completely sold a pup but there are people who, whose, whose reasons weren't racist but they were economic and I can understand this they were saying I work in a factory and so many of the people who work in the factory are Polish or Eastern European and they're willing to come here and work for quite low wages and everyone there who is uh, from not from uh, from Britain who's doing that job is in a place where someone from Britain could be doing that job at a time when there are people who are struggling for work and therefore they wanted them out what well, obviously what they're missing is if you want people to to if you don't want people coming and being allowed to work for lower wages than you're willing to accept 
the problem there isn't those people. The problem is the people paying the wages. And so we just raise the minimum wage and say, you can't get away with paying people below the minimum wage or below the living wage. And then that problem starts to be addressed. So people saw a genuine problem of a housing shortage that they said, well, these are all going to immigrants. And actually the housing shortage is because we sold, the government sold off government housing and didn't build any more government houses. And suddenly there's a housing shortage. So people did see genuine problems in their communities but they attributed the cause of those problems to the wrong source and therefore attributed an incorrect fix to those problems, which was stop the foreigners coming in and we'll be fine, when that isn't the problem, really. Okay, but to be fair to their argument, you'll you'll have different foreigners coming Yeah, in, we'll have different right? foreigners. But in, in fairness to them, that argument was not made to them. And when it was made, people people dismissed it saying, oh, that's just project fear. That's just what they want you to think. Oh, and this has a, this obviously, this has a corona element that is, beautiful because one of the jobs that we absolutely need European workers or migrant workers coming in to do is picking the food at farms, picking vegetables on the ground, potatoes, etc. in farms. Um, and we don't have enough British workers willing to do that. And we actually had, uh, now that we, we've had a whole Brexit thing going on, and also then the pandemic has stopped immigration anyway, because you're not allowed to travel right now, um, we've got too few workers to actually tend to our farms and there's food rotting in the ground. And then the government went on a big campaign to try and get British workers to come and do it. And they asked for 50,000 workers and they got 10,000 workers and not all those 10,000 people turned up. And it was actually close to a few hundred people actually were willing to do the job in the end. <laughs> a few hundred? I, I forget the exact numbers, but it was ludicrously low. It was comically low. So what did the government have to do? They put on a private plane to fly people from Romania to the farms to pick the, 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 the produce. So That's the government started doing immigration on a person-by-person basis on basically a fucking private jet. <sighs> so, like, it seems to me like like a huge part of, like, this whole thing is, like, there is a global economy and there's there's global economic realities that are part of being, like, a part of an interconnected global economy. And, like, what what the EU fundamentally did is it allowed us to have, like, broad term agreements and yeah. now you guys have to create individualized agreements over every economic category of decisions rather than just having a broad based set of look where you know these borders don't economically matter the same way so we can do that now you have to now you have to do all that work individually because the broad economic reality is or, or broad economic decisions are are wiped out. Like, yeah, and we've got to do it individually for everything we need to How the fuck are you supposed to, to even agree? know what decisions you didn't have to make before? That, that's, that's exactly it. And the thing is, we've got to make those decisions on every single thing that needs to be agreed. So every different type of trade, what could possibly come up? Uh, but the, the EU is also very good at setting safety regulations and standardization. So you'd have a standardized safety regulation across the entire block. And in fact, one of the, the membership criteria is around safety regulations, human rights uh, regulations. Uh, you have to sign on to certain human rights and, and values in order to be part of the team, and um, part of the club, which raise the standard of, uh, of, of workers' uh, workers' rights. So that included things like maternity and paternity leave. And that's why we've got a fairly decent maternity and paternity uh, leave. It's not the only reason. We might have done it ourselves, but we certainly had to do it as part of the EU. Um, same with, uh, with, pay, with um, paid leave. Uh, we have a much more generous paid leave scheme than you guys get in America. And again, we might have done that voluntarily, but we had to do it to, to, to remain in the EU. So those kinds of things are now there for the government to start to pick 
way at oh, if they Jesus want to. Christ. Um, but not only do we need to make all of these decisions uh, on every single aspect with the EU, the other thing the EU does really well is the EU says these trade negotiations are a massive ball ache. You don't want to be doing them. So rather than Britain figuring out how they trade with America and Canada and Japan and every other country in the world individually, so going through all of this hassle every time, instead, the EU will do that with those countries. So if you're in the EU membership scheme, then you don't, you can't negotiate individually with other countries. But the flip side of that is you don't have to because they'll do it for you. And the EU being therefore a much larger block, you know, way, way more people means you get a much better econo uh, economy of scale and you get a much better deal. So while you're not allowed to trade, Britain as part of the EU could not set up a, a, an individual trade agreement with the uh, with the US, for example, we can do it, you know, the EU will do it for us and you get to sign on these much, much better terms than you could possibly agree because they're trading to way more people. Now we're leaving the EU, we have to do that trade negotiation with the EU which means get an agreement on the EU side from the other 27 countries who all have to agree. And if one of them says no, then it doesn't happen. Which means we now have way less bargaining power than Ireland, than Spain. So when Spain Jesus. say, you know, Gibraltar, you've always considered that an English territory. And the EU has always said, guys, this isn't our fight. You're both members. You sort it out. Now you're not a member of the EU, so the EU is on our side. We're still members of the EU. So we're going to have Gibraltar back, thank you. Otherwise, we aren't going to say yes to your trade negotiation. So we have way less sway than even the smallest, if you find the smallest member of the EU, you know, Latvia or, or somewhere, we have less sway than them because the EU is a collective club. And uh, if, if they all have to say yes, so they will represent the, the interests of every member equally, in favour of the members over the person they're negotiating with. So we've got that that we need to do with the EU, but then we need to do it with every other country in the world <laughs> because previously we weren't, we weren't allowed to have these agreements with other countries, so we don't have them. And now we so won't have, have access to, to the ones we do have. Now? So we've got to do everything from scratch. Yeah. Oh, and we've got so to do like, that by the end of the year. So fingers crossed, <laughs> nothing massive this happens in, like, in 2020. Yeah, this is like picking up a game of civilization, like midstream, uh, blindfolded with no idea what, like, what led you here. How the fuck yeah. are you supposed to do that? And with a, with a clock running, with a deadline. And the deadline's the end and of this year. And with coronavirus, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so the know. coronavirus comes along and we've not done any negotiating before. This is a job I can do from home. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> You're going to have to. Yeah. So I, I let's talk about the coronavirus. Um, yeah, let's. you know, we talk. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, how the NHS is handling it, and also there was a story that came out, um, and it was from the Guardian, and uh, and it, it talked a little bit about coordination between uh, the EU <laughs> health and and the UK. Uh, it feels like you guys are <laughs> still, in some ways, working closely with the uh, the the EU but you don't want to be part of it. It's like it's like this weird sort of like UK wants an open relationship sort of thing going on, you <laughs> yeah. know? Yeah, very, very much. So so basically, we are still um, part of, well, we're on the way out of the EU at the moment, but the EU said when this crisis hit that they would consider us part of the club still for the purposes of acquiring ventilators and the various other kind of pandemic response stuff. And you could see that as the EU being kind of generous and magnanimous. You know, they could be saying like, well, I know you're on your way out, but this is a massive issue we've got to pull together. 
The flip side of it is they could be saying they could be thinking the UK is really close to us in terms of landmass, and if the UK is totally fucked, then our efforts to defeat this pandemic are going to be so much harder. So it makes sense sure. for us to, to to loop that in. I mean, bear in mind that the EU shares a land border with the UK in Ireland. So if the north of Ireland was in the UK, out of the EU, and absolutely screwing up uh, the corona uh, issue, uh, and the Republic of Ireland's in the EU and doing better because they had the kind of the EU collective bargaining kind of for, for ventilators and stuff, that border becomes really tense. And that's a border that's already pretty tense, that border. In heard, I've heard something about that. I think yeah, there might have been yeah. some rumbling historically. So one way or another, like the EU were offered the UK the opportunity to stay in, uh, in in terms of uh, stay involved in some of these conversations about pandemic and and in ter- terms of buying up ventilators, moving ventilators around the EU to where they're needed. And I know parts of the EU, I think Germany's actually been flying Italian uh, patients to German hospitals in order to to, to get better kind of uh, treatment for them, things like that. But the UK had the opinion of, well, no, we're leaving the EU. So why the hell should we have to work with those bastards? No, we'll go it alone because we are a proud nation. We are the Great Britain. We can do this alone. And what we've done alone is basically surpassing Italy as the single worst hit country in Europe. And uh, if that isn't true at the time of recording, it is true at the time of this going out because we're about 150, 180 deaths away from being worse than Italy. So that's what we've managed alone. And Britain's the government when they were pushed on this to say you were invited to be part of this scheme why did you turn down the chance to have ventilators when you needed them equipment when you needed them their response was oh um we didn't get the email about the scheme the email what? was missing yeah, Wait, yeah for real not we even we didn't that- get your e- oh yeah. you know what it must have been in my spam filter yep. the pandemic response spam filter yeah and, and you what know, the fuck? obviously this is a show where we hyperbolize and we, you know, in conversation, we'll fuck around and we'll, we'll make jokes. Just be absolutely clear. I'm deadly serious. They said they didn't get the email. That is not <laughs> and, hyperbole. That is serious. I, I love that because it also supposes that they didn't send an email, right? Yeah. Like, hey, so this is like, like to Cecil's like comment about the, like, it's like, it's like leaving your 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 house in a huff and then like borrowing gas money to do it. Like it's like, what the fuck? This well, makes no not sense only does at all. It presupposes that they didn't send the email. It also presupposes that they weren't sat in the meeting while it was being discussed, which they were. There was it didn't wasn't just something that happened over email. Okay, but Jim was supposed to follow up yeah, and he didn't do it. So like a hundred thousand people are gonna die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is <laughs> you know, literally true. Yes. That's, you know, look, I, you said we had this on our list of next steps and I don't move past my bullet points on next steps. So I didn't get the email. My hands are tied guys. You can see, I mean, like nobody likes a bureaucrat, but you know, my hands really, what are they supposed to do? Like, 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 is this like, just like essentially like government at its heart agreeing that like government is just a social construct where we all agree. Fuck you. You're on your own. I think that. It was what's happening here. The UK government woefully underestimated how serious this was going to be. Like massively, massively underestimated. They saw it in China. They ignored it. They saw it happening in Italy. And Boris Johnson went on holiday. He went on holiday whilst it was happening in Italy. You know, while Italy was in lockdown, the government was. Boris Johnson came back and was saying that uh, he was personally shaking the hands of coronavirus patients. He said that. 
while other parts but of the world... But he never got sick, how'd that so work that out for him? <laughs> how did that work out for him? A few weeks just, later, he caught that really contagious uh, virus that was I going see. around, funnily oh enough, and ended God. up in, uh, in intensive care. How, but who could have foreseen that, though, Marsh? There's <laughs> me no way of knowing. No way of knowing. Oh, Gosh. The, the other thing is the government initially ran a, a plan, uh, which they were... The, the plan was, and Boris Johnson went on uh, national television, on ITV, one of the, the sort of free-to-air channels here in the UK, and said, there was a theory that we could just sort of take it on the chin and allow the virus <laughs> to pass through the society in order to give us yeah. immunity. And that was yeah, their initial no, yeah, plan. That's... Because yeah. they fucked up all the models, they didn't re- yep. they didn't factor in how serious this, uh, how seriously transmissible this was. They didn't look at the uh, examples of uh, of China or of Italy. They thought, well, it, that's happening in Italy, but we're better than Italy. We can just sort this because we're Britain. We're exceptional. We can just do this. And by the time they realised that developing a natural herd immunity was not going to work, it was already way too late. They had an, a, a horse racing event, Cheltenham, the Cheltenham Cup, which is uh, a big horse ra- racing weekend. Two hundred and fifty thousand people attended it after Italy was in lockdown. You know, at the point where parts of Madrid, parts of Spain were in lockdown and, and Madrid was suffering a crisis, the government allowed a football match to go ahead in which a thousand fans flew from Madrid to here in Liverpool. And a couple of weeks later, for one thing, I got the fucking coronavirus. Oh <laughs> no! Lots of other people in Liverpool got the coronavirus because we literally imported corona at a time when they, these fans weren't allowed to go to stadiums in Spain. They were allowed to fly to our stadiums. And that's because the government decided, not our problem, mate. This isn't going to be that bad. You guys can sort it all out. But do, does does Boris Johnson, are there any doctors in the UK? Yeah, and they're I mean, fucking like, like, I mean, I mean, seriously, like even here, we have an absolute buffoon who's running things. I mean, he is, it is, it is the most clown shoes ass shit you've ever seen in your entire life. Every day, Donald Trump gets on the the TV and he says things that you literally cannot believe mm. someone would say aloud, let alone the president of the United States saying them aloud. But he at least has a, a, a whole slew of people that have to, after he speaks, correct what he said. I, what I don't understand is how how did it how did it get to the point where you're doing all this stuff? Was there no one there saying, "Hey, this is fucking stupid, guys"? And then, or was there just a, com- a complete level of inaction? Well, so um, the government has a, a scientific advisory group, and I forget what the exact name is. Sci- scientific advisory group for emergencies, I think it is. It goes by the acronym Sage. And uh, all the way through, um, every single and we've been having daily press conferences with a, a, a one member of the, of the of the parliament of the of the government, and every single one of them has said we've been led by the science. We take the right steps at the right time to ramp up our capacity when we need it because we are led by the science. And the science is coming from these uh, this this advisory group. But what's kind of crucial is there isn't such a thing as the science. It depends which scientists you listen to, and if they've all got different models and they've all got different ideas. Uh, if you look at a span of scientific uh, papers and a span of scientific models, and then you seek out the one that already agrees with what you wanted to do anyway, you can then say, well, I was guided by the science. And of all the 15, 20 scientists I spoke to, the one who agreed with me is the one I was guided by. And so (laughs) one of the big scandals that came out a little while ago 
I think it was last week, week before, a couple of weeks ago, um, was these SAGE meetings, which are meant to be very high-level, scientific, objective, apolitical meetings of just scientists sharing the scientific data. You know, the Chief Medical Officer of England, the CMO for for Wales and Scotland, they would all be there. Well, the Chief Medical Officer for Scotland and Wales were there, but they weren't allowed to ask questions unless those questions were submitted in writing. But someone who was there and who was on the panel and was allowed to ask questions at any point was the, uh, the, the Boris Johnson's lead advisor, a guy called Dominic Cummings, who's responsible for, uh, in part, the Brexit vote. He ran the Vote Leave campaign. So a lot of the stuff that came out of Vote Leave was Dominic Cummings' uh, master plan, essentially, his ideas, his, his kind of strategy and communications. He's on the panel. And what leaked in uh, reports in the panel was that he was asking a lot of questions in this supposedly apolitical panel. Now, if you have someone who's already quite a controversial figure, who is very closely tied to what the government already wants to do, and he's involved in asking questions and leading and uh, being part of the discussion in that panel in a way that other scientists, well, actual scientists, because he's not one, you know, actual scientists aren't allowed to be on there, you are muddying the waters of that impartial scientific advice because you've thrown a dickhead into the mix who's not there because he's an expert. He's there because he's representing what the government wants to be true. At least he's not spitballing shooting fucking Clorox in your veins, though. <laughs> like, like, I mean, at some point, there's this there's this saving grace, and it's that you don't have somebody who's a, such an absolute buffoon, he thinks you can stick fucking UV light in your body no, that's and true. kill the coronavirus. <laughs> no, you are far worse than us on that. I mean, that's that's absolutely true. <laughs> oh, I guess, I guess that I'm would glad. be why you're number one in Europe and we're number one in the world yeah, in terms yeah, of exactly. coronavirus cases. That's... It's it's like it's our buffoonery fucking system. Like we're just like raising, we're setting the fucking curve for buffoonery. Do you guys have protesters? Um, well, we didn't up until you guys start to have protesters. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, and then we had a, a protest. The this number weekend. one American export is culture. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We are in the same way that you know um, you see spikes of, of uh, coronavirus infections a couple of weeks after a major kind of uh, gathering in, in a certain place. We see spikes of dickheadery a couple of weeks after you guys start being pricks. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes. We we are catching that and developing the, that particular disease just a little Very while after soon. You. So we ha- someone is going to be, you're going to have a bunch of assholes marching up and down the street with fucking long guns. Guaranteed. <laughs> Real soon. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You know? God, it's ridiculous. We have, we have a, a, a whole slew of people here in the United States, different places, different, actually different states too, um, having their own protests, uh, which is, it's just insane. It's just the dumbest shit ever. And then to have a conversation with those people, my favorite is to watch the conversations that the reporters have with them. And these people literally have no idea what they're doing oh, yeah. or why they're doing it. They're just mad. They're just upset and they just want to be mad and then probably eventually die. So the thing is like, they're mad at the wrong thing. Like there are like really great legitimate reasons to be furious with our government right mm. now over their like, gross mismanagement of the pandemic. The pandemic is like people's lives are disrupted in ways that they don't have to be disrupted if we had managed this better. Like that's the thing we should be like taking to our cars. If we're going to take to our cars and honk our horns and like be angry at our government, like I actually think that's perfectly legitimate. The government has done a horrifyingly bad job. There's still not available testing here. Oh, you yeah, know, well, that's it, criminal. What's the the testing testing situation like there? 
So the government, oh, the testing situation is fantastic. So um, for one thing, I don't know anyone who's had a test and I don't know, I don't know anyone who knows anyone who's had a test, um, but the government set a, a target, um, which I think during March was going to be 20,000 a day initially, and they went nowhere near that. And so they said, well, by the end of April, yeah. it will be 100,000 tests a day. And as April rolled on, they were getting to 30,000, 40,000 tests a day. Yeah. And it was getting, it was brought up in a uh, an interview or a press conference, I forget which, and they put to the minister behind it, you know, you said you're going to get to 100,000, but actually uh, you've only done 23,000 tests yesterday. Um, and you're supposed to be at 40,000 at this point of the month. So how come you're not doing this? And what the minister said was, well, the important thing is we had the capacity for 40,000 tests. So well, that's yes, not the important thing at all. It's not the important thing. It's not the important <laughs> thing at all. It's like saying, Tom, you, did, you did no work yesterday. Tom? No, no, that was his genuine answer. So, Tom, you, you did no work yesterday. Well, yeah, but the important thing was I had the capacity to do work yesterday. <laughs> but that doesn't fly. It's very much about what you actually did, especially oh when my what you're meant to be doing is testing people if they have a deadly virus. So, this, so he wasn't being sarcastic. No, no, that was a genuine response. And the See, because that's a, that's, a, that's a thing that can happen here is they can either be sarcastic or not. And you have to decide whether or not. And so it's a little more difficult, but he's just being, okay, he's being honest. Yeah, Go ahead, we, no, we, continue on. We just no. keep moving the goalposts. And so- Got it. They needed to get 100,000 tests done by the end of April. Otherwise, they missed this arbitrary figure, admittedly arbitrary figure that they that they set, because we should be way beyond that, really. We should be testing the fuck out of everyone. And it's the only yeah. way, test and trace is the only way we can do this. But they looked like it was getting towards the last week of April, and they were still in the sort of 40,000s. They weren't near the 100. And so it didn't look like they're going to make it. And then it, it was announced on the last day of April, they made it to 120,000 tests. And... That number was made up of the 122,000 tests. It was made up of uh, 73,000 tests that were completed. And the rest were tests that had been sent to people. And they said, so we've made it past our target of 100,000 tests carried out. And that's only true if you include carried out in the same way that a postal worker carries the parcel out to somebody. That is not a test carried out. That's a test being conveyed. It's a yeah. test being, you know, posted, but it's not an actual test in the sense that nobody has been tested. You know, those people have not been tested. So the government just flat out lied about the number. It was actually 70 odd thousand. Um, it, they said it was 122,000. Um, and it's, it, it's like saying, you know, I have been on dates. I have dated hundreds of women. Well, I say that. What I mean is I've sent out Tinder requests to hundreds of women and any day now they'll all come back in and then I will definitely have dated them. It's, the same, it's not the same thing. Like, so, so your testing situation is, and our testing situation is a, is a goddamn nightmare. I, have a, I had a family friend um, died of coronavirus Friday. Oh, shit. And her husband did not get a test for coronavirus until Wednesday. So Jesus. he died on Friday and he could not get tested because being in the same household still was not until she was admitted to hospital and then she passed very quickly. But until she was admitted to the hospital, that was insufficient to meet the guideline to get him tested. And of course he's positive for it. You know, mm -hmm. he's, he's very sick. Um, so like this, the testing standard is a fucking nightmare here. And I am sympathetic as to why that like causes people to lose their patience. You know, like if you're not going to do anything proactively to change the situation, I, I am, I, I think the Cecil's point, like the people protesting are fucking knuckleheads, but yeah. that sense of like, we're just not doing anything. All we're doing is turning off the spigot and then like standing around staring at each other. 
What is what is the rest like? What is the general feeling in the in in Britain about this? Like, are people are people unemployed in the same kind of mass numbers? Are people starting to boil over here there like they are here? Yeah, it's it's starting to bite a bit. But in fairness, there was a, a couple of things the government did do which were which were significantly useful. One of the things they did was announce a furloughing scheme uh, where uh, workers instead of if, if a if a business couldn't afford to keep a worker on because they aren't making any money or anything like that, instead of sacking that worker, the government said, you put them on kind of furlough leave and we'll pay 80% of their salary up to a certain amount and, and for a duration of time. With the idea being that once we get past this issue, those people uh, are able to come back into work and hopefully not have this massive shock to the, to the economy of, of mass unemployment and therefore businesses shrinking as a result of that and this kind of feedback system. So that has helped with some people, although it was, it was delivered in such a way that was not particularly useful. So it was delivered basically by the public demanding something be done, and then the government figuring, like answering that one thing, answering that question. So what about all these people who'd be laid off? You can't just let them uh, go without a, an income. Okay, we'll, we'll sort this for an income. But what about self-employed people? Okay, we'll sort that. Well, what about mortgages? How, how are we going to cope with the mortgages? All right, we'll sort that. And so it was literally sort You're of three steps day. ahead of us. Yeah, it was. It was very much the gov- government by uh, just by public demand, basically. And the problem with that, obviously, is that you're all tactic and no strategy because you're always just reacting to what everybody identifies as a need because you didn't do the work to identify the need yourself. But the other thing that can be quite tricky is it actually can lead to the go- to the to the confidence in that government going up amongst people because they will see we needed this and the government gave it. We needed this, and the government gave it. They see questions being answered and demands being met, you know, and needs being met. But what they don't see is that the government should have predicted those needs because otherwise you put in place a fix, which has got a massive hole in it, which creates another need, and you're constantly doing that. So that's a massive issue, and I think (laughs) that's kind of... That still sounds utopian by comparison. In comparison, it it definitely definitely sounds better. We're just like, there's a need. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, if, if it seems like we're doing that much better than you, I'll I'll give you a story that will uh, show you that we aren't doing that much better than you. And, it, and it, uh, you may be better than us on this. So the numbers that we see every day, the, the deaths you know, of, of coronavirus, these numbers that have become the new reality to us of just seeing numbers rising on a, on a daily basis and the, the, the going from being terrified at those numbers to being completely blasé and, and blind to those numbers because they, become, they lose meaning because they're so kind of regular that you're seeing these kind of tallies of deaths. In the UK, these numbers were looking better than other parts of Europe. And then after a while, people start to ask the question of what those numbers were. And you'd imagine those numbers were the number of people who died of coronavirus, because that's what they say they are, and that's very much what we need to count at the moment. But instead, those numbers were the number of people who died of coronavirus in hospital. And we weren't counting people who died of coronavirus not in hospital. So we didn't count people who died in the community. And we didn't okay, count Okay, but they were on people. base, so yeah, it doesn't exactly. count when you're on they didn't base. Count. We didn't yeah. count people who died in care homes. We didn't count, therefore, the elderly people who died of a virus that disproportionately kills elderly people in places where elderly people are in near, co- near contact with other elderly people. And so there are care homes here in Liverpool, not far from where I live, um, just, you know, just down the road, where th- like, uh, it's something like three quarters of their in- intake, three quarters of people living there have died of coronavirus. And up until last week, but now everybody gets a single, so that's not as yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> but up until, up until last week, those numbers were not counting. The government just didn't count them, and that can only be either incompetence to not know and not know how to check, 
or kind of spin to make the numbers look better than they actually are. Um, it's staggering that this was going on. And this was actually put to uh, a government minister on television this morning, where they said, you know, Boris Johnson said people around the world are looking at the success of Britain. And um, what well, really is this somewhat so much of a success when we see our numbers are much, much worse than other countries? And how do you explain that? And the government minister, a guy called Grant Chaps, said, well, the issue really could be that we in Britain just might have better statisticians who are better at working out how many people have died than in those other countries. So British exceptionalism even stretches to counting dead people. We're just better at that than other countries. And that's why there's all these dead people. In Italy, in Jesus Spain, you, people are walking down the street stepping over dead people, not noticing oh, that they're God. there. Britain, we'd have spotted that dead person, we'd have counted it. That's why our numbers are high. That's the only reason they're higher. Well, at least your, your PM isn't advocating eating poison. That is, um, that is true. Besides, besides British food. Yeah, and it's probably <laughs> advocating that. But. I don't even think the British advocate eating that. It's just a grudging acceptance <laughs> that that's all that's, that's available, Cecil. I mean, to be honest, we haven't heard from him. We've barely heard from him because he yeah. was on holiday. Because he was sick. And then he was sick. He was in intensive care. Yeah. He was recuperating. Then his partner gave birth to a baby, the partner he left his previous wife for uh, gave birth to a, a baby. He is still planning at some point to go on paternity leave as well. It's like, guy, mate, you've got a fucking All of that sounds utopian. Here. Like, I'm just, I'm just saying, oh, like, yeah, a yeah. leader who doesn't show up, that's the kind of leader we need right now. Like, <laughs> we need absentee leadership. Yeah, yeah, that, that is true. What you need is for somebody, what you need is for a, a very attractive model to contract the coronavirus and then fly directly to Mar-a-Lago to take one for the team to do a patriotic <laughs> duty because we know for a fact he cannot keep his hands of women in his vicinity whether or not he has consent to touch them. Um, I'm not even saying the model has to lead him on. She can just stand there and he will let he will do the rest for her. <laughs> the one saving grace over here, and I don't know how familiar you are with what's happening over here, but the one saving grace over here, I think, is that you know, the states have some level of autonomy mm. and have been uh, in several states under some pretty good leadership. Mm. Um, some leadership that's really shown that um, that it can handle this sort of uh, crisis and uh, and has acted in the in the way the best possible way it can, even uh, in some ways without the support of the government and in in, a, in opposition to support of the government. So it's it's been it's been some some states have done a lot better than others. Um, and I think specifically Illinois has been I think pretty good. Mm. Um, there's some things that are that are you know just bad, but you know it's everybody's doing this for the first time, so it's hard to it's hard to you know Monday morning quarterback some stuff. But really genuinely, we've been there's been we've been. There's been a, a, a bright spot here, especially in Illinois. We, we acted on it early and we've been paying a lot of attention to it. So, um, but yeah, it's it, like Tom said though, it's still hard to get tests and it's still hard to, the antibody test is going to be the one thing I think that's going to change everything. Yeah, yeah. It's the moment we get, we start getting widespread antibody tests, then we can have people who, like you say, you had the disease. If you get the antibody test, you say, great, well then just go back into society, you know, and then you get your little six, six, six mark and you go off into society <laughs> yeah, and you do your thing yeah. it, and then you come uh, back and, and you know, the thing is, is the people who are, who don't have it, they need to isolate or, and be much more careful than the people who do, yeah. who've already had it. The you problem know, is just, they're it, not going just to. change the, it would, what's that? The problem is they definitely aren't going to. If, if you, yeah. if, if you and I have had it and we're allowed to go back out because we carry our little kind of, uh, you know, passport that says, yeah, we, we, we're fine. Um, Everybody else, and, and I can understand this, if people who are you know, on the breadline, people who can see yeah. their jobs going away and they think, well, if I just get the virus, 
I'm probably going to be all right. I think I'm not in a, in yeah, a, in a bad you're right, situation. You're, right. you're going yeah. to end up with um, COVID parties. You're going to go yep. end up with yep. a, 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 a real boom. So yeah, that's it's going to it's going to help and it's also going to hinder. It's going to have to be very very tightly managed. And God knows uh, how that how well that's going to be done in different places. And you know, different places I imagine will do it better than others. Well, there, there so far isn't the 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 science is not definitive at all about whether or not having had corona provides immunity to a second infection like the we the, that the who has come out and said there's no reason to believe that you can't get it twice well like I as think, early I think as, as late no as last week to say that which I, I right. think that's the 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 who's being very cautious about their use of uh, of terminology and that we haven't got good right. evidence that it will give you long-term immunity because there hasn't been long term for immunity. Right. <laughs> it's not so, old enough. And to that's have problematic immunity. with like with immunity passports, though, right? Or some yeah. similar product, right? Is that yeah? I get an antibody test and I had coronavirus and I return to work and I'm immune. Like, but I may not be immune for two months. I might not be immune for six months. I may not be immune for. I might not be immune at all. So, mm-hmm. to like set policy based on an assumption of immunity that that may or may not exist and may or may not have a fucking timer on it. Oh, yeah, Seems yeah. like we'd a need really to have, fucking dangerous thing to do. Yeah, we'd, we'd need to be absolutely bulletproof or as, be, as bulletproof as you can be on that before that uh, that was the case. Although it, it happens that my my colleague at the Merseyside Skeptic Society and on Skeptics with a K podcast, uh, Alice Howarth, is a... Um, uh, a working researcher who's got a PhD in cancer research and now works in inf- infectious disease. And so she's been talking quite a lot about how these tests work and how the antibodies work and how things are, are likely to be. And uh, she's been quite useful for, to talk to about this. Uh, and one of the things she was saying is that of virus in this family, we've seen lots of these viruses, you will develop immunity and that we haven't seen any evidence and any, any reason to think that you wouldn't get immunity from it yet. Well, that's good um, news. But the problem is we haven't had long enough to figure that out. Although, I mean, it was it was, was emerged in China in December, so it's had six months. We aren't seeing huge reinfection with people there. Um, some people have tested positive having had it before and then been on a, on a retest. It looks like what actually was happening, it was dead parts of the virus still knocking about their system, having been killed by the immune system, and, and that was what was triggering the test. So there is some uh, quiet positivity that immunity should be possible, Um Natural immunity from having had the disease being one thing, obviously the the, the thing that will be the real uh, magic bullet will be developing synthetic immunity, having kind of created a virus that can uh, that can give you much much better immunity than uh, than just having developed it. But you'd imagine that enough people had it in January that if there wasn't a four or five month immunity, you know, around the world, we'd start to see those places exploding again where things have locked down and and maybe the fact that we haven't been seeing that is some signs of positivity but for the time being no one knows anything and you can't make any right. policy until we've, we're, we're based yeah, on something pretty part solid. of the reason it might not re-explode is because of the lockdown right yeah, like it's yeah, just absolutely. less you know part of I, who knows it's just there's so much unknown around that uh around that aspect of it it's it's that's why those immunity passports like i I, I am I am so sympathetic, especially in places that don't have the kind of social safety net that even you described in Britain. Like here in the states, it's like thirty million people at least are out of work, and they're mm-hmm. they can't. There's a lot of places where people can't even file for unemployment, and unemployment is a pittance against what you would have made at your job. It's actually it's actually designed to be significantly less than what you would have made from your job. And there's a government backstop right now to a portion of that, but. 
still it's 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 poverty inducing for yeah, sure it, it's the same here in the uk and um when before the furloughing scheme came in there were lots of people whose otherwise fairly comfortable jobs had to let them go and then they found themselves on universal credit which is kind of the unemployment uh, benefit or it it's the benefit for all benefits basically so your unemployment benefit your child benefit your disability benefit it all kind of comes from the same system universal credit and it was it was a disaster when it was rolled out mm. it it led it, it, it was rolled out i think last year the year before it led people to have to go six to eight weeks without any payment at all. Um, some of those people didn't make it six to eight weeks, and there's there's actually a death toll to the the late rollout yeah. and how long it took for people to actually get recompensed that way. And there's been a system that's been fraught with um, ill design uh, and cruelty that may or may not be intentional, uh, in the sense of it's trying to be punitive into into dissuading people from being on universal credit. And it's been that way since it was first rolled out. And there were ministers who who you know lost their jobs over how badly it was rolled out. But then we saw all these people who would otherwise have been in comfortable jobs having to go for universal credit. And we saw this rush of stories in the media saying, well, how are people meant to, uh, supposed to live on just this small amount per week? Isn't this uh, ridiculous? And it's like, yeah. And there's been people saying that for literally years <laughs> right. and you didn't listen to them because they right, were poor right. and you thought they deserved right. it. You know, you thought they yep. weren't as smart as you. But now we've got someone yeah. who was, you know, doing a, a marketing manager's job in, in, a, in an agency who's been let off and they're suddenly on a, a pauper's pittance and they're saying, well, this is ridiculous. No one can live on this. I said, like, yeah, they, they couldn't live on it before, you know, all of this. And they certainly couldn't live on it without the reserves of, of savings you may have or the, the house that you might uh, be in and that right. kind of thing. Um, yeah, so people are, are waking up to that at least. Um, whether- Wait a minute, being poor sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, nobody told me. I wish somebody would have let me know. So whether people will remember that message when we come back from all of this, who knows? Whether we are even in a, in a position fiscally as a country to do anything about that um, when we come back from this. Also, we don't know. Um, I, I, I'd like to think this this experience is in some way radicalizing people to see the problems in the system we already have. Yeah, um, hope so. And I, I just think people are doubling down in the systems that in, in what they already believe. I feel way more radicalized to be further left than I than I was, and I was already fairly left to begin with. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you just kind of wow. if we don't all band together and storm Richard Branson's private island, then uh, then I don't think we've gone far enough. Well, Marsh, it was a lot of fun talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you on much sooner than we had in the past here, <laughs> since the like, long drought we had with no Marsh. We're looking forward to talking to you in the future, if there is a future. So, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure, guys. Always good to catch up with you guys. And uh, yeah, stay safe, eh? So uh, we are not going to be reading patrons this week uh, because Tom is uh, Tom took the week off this week and we're recording this a little early. So uh, so we are not going to be reading patrons this week. We promise to do it next week. We do still want to encourage you to become patrons, please. Um, it means the world to us if you're a patron. So we ask if you are a fan of the show or if you if you if you just started listening to if you've been listening to us for the ten years we've been doing it. We ask you, 
Um, please go to patreon.com, become, uh, become a patron of the show. You get a ton of extra content. Tom is putting out uh, uh, an audio version of the blog he writes for his boys. We have a full extra hour of content almost every week from our live stream audio that gets given to patrons in MP3 format. And we, uh, and we still do, po- do on occasion do some extras and uh, some other stuff for the patrons. So we just want to thank everybody who is a patron and we encourage everybody to become a patron. We will read all your names next week, we promise. We want to thank Michael Marshall of the Merseyside Skeptics. He does a wonderful show called Skeptics with a K. You should check it out if you haven't. It's a wonderful show. Very smart people on that show. Very, very funny, clever people. You should check it out. Uh, And that is going to wrap it up for this week. So we are going to leave you, like we always do, with the Skeptics Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno-Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, cancer cures, detox, reflex, foot massage, death and towers, tarot cars, psychic healing, crystal balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, aliens, churches, mosques and synagogues, temples, dragons, giant worms, Atlantis, dolphins, truthers, birthers, witches, wizards, vaccine nuts, shaman healers, evangelists, conspiracy, doublespeak, stigmata, nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. Cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information, and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. Produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you. (laughs) 